Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interligi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests on sharing experiences, information, and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, to name a few. You can learn more, connect with the Loop Me In community, and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Welcome, Thea Calzoni. Uh, We're very lucky to have you on. You've just written a book called Dancing with the Maternal Bond, which both Lisa and I have ordered but read snippets of it um, and are very excited about reading it. Oh, that's lovely to hear. It's a real joy having um, kind of got everything down on paper and just got that little bit of sort of distance between me and and what seems like a really long struggle. (laughs) Sounds horrible, but my struggle. (laughs) This has been really cathartic, actually, or brought up some stuff because I know that, you know, um, Chris and I have probably taped around 10 podcasts now and, um, you know, we, uh, through that process, have, you know, connected on different issues with our speakers and with each other and really brought back memories and feelings, uh, sometimes just feelings, um, through those conversations. So I imagine writing a book was was really um, cathartic and emotional. Yeah, at the time it was, um, I mean, it was just another, it was another difficult journey really. Um, I, I think like you're saying, you know, when you probably, when you did your first um, podcast, it was a little bit nerve-wracking and, and you know, maybe it got a little bit easier as you went along. You seem like professionals now so and you've only done eight or nine. So it's it's been an experience that you've really grown through and I think that's a good thing. But there, there any effort brings up self-doubt, doesn't it? And, um, you know, and you, you sort of think, why are you doing this? And you and people are going to ask you why you're doing it. And there's all those sorts of questions in your mind too. Yeah. I think that for me it was, there were, there were few aspects to writing. One of them was that it was a healing thing for me to do, a way of um, during the early days it was a way of writing down things that I couldn't share with other people. Isn't it funny how we feel that we can't, share things that we really have so much in common with other people but we don't want to admit to them for some reason because especially in the early days it seems like you should be able to 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 get this but you're not quite getting it as if you found failed a motherhood test mm. yeah I think that's probably you know true of you know the way that at least I felt it was you felt guilt for something that I'm not 100% sure why you felt guilt of having a child with a disability. But, you know, I carried that for a long time. Another thing that people say they feel is judgment. They feel the judgment of others. And mm-hmm. something that I experienced directly, but I think I was protecting myself from it, you know. I was wanting to try and present everything in the worst, in the, the best possible light so that to, to avoid any risk of being judged. Yeah, yeah, and I think I had my antenna out for it all the time, like it's a bit um, defensive. Yeah. But people were judgmental. You know, like I think particularly it wasn't evident that Louis had a disability physically. You wouldn't know that, only his behaviour um, when he was little. You know, he, um, you know, couldn't stand very 
you know, busy or loud or bright environments and he'd scream. And I often got judged at the supermarket or something. People thought he was out of control and I was a bad mother, but actually he was, you know, really suffering in those environments. Yeah. And I think you're so, uh, you don't have time to be nice to people and to sort of to stop and explain uh, because you have to be so focused on focused, yeah. regulating, regulating yourself and regulating your child and you're just in this little zone, aren't you, with them. It's as if the rest of the world falls away. Mm. Yeah. So mm. true. And, uh, and so, wow, I think people are, are a little bit more understanding these days perhaps in some situations, but you will always get people who will feel that, you shouldn't be out with your child if that's the issue, you know, mm. that, that have this idea that somehow there are situations that you're deliberately putting your child and yourself in this situation when in many cases there's no option. And even if there isn't any option, your child needs to learn and to be acclimatised to different things. And so mm. it has to come a little bit through um, that confrontation, you know. And why do they have the lollies and all those things there and all the bright lights and, and all that stuff? What, what What is it about this world that's there to kind of to, to actually get to people's nerves anyway? Yeah. You don't notice that you have a really sensitive child or you're a very sensitive person yourself. Mm, so true. Now I'm getting judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I wanted to talk about why I why I wanted to write the book and I think part of it was that I had spent so long trying to make Julian kind of look and be good in the world, you know. I really just invested all my creativity in that. And then once he got to being in adulthood and he was starting to get some positive feedback, you know, from people, and I thought, right, now it's my turn to shine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I've got something to say. I'd always wanted to write about what an interesting life I've had, apart from Julian, but just some of the really lovely and fascinating and bizarre people that I've met who have been actually able to help us in our journey in Mm. ways, you know. And people sometimes, you know, uh, who have kind of like you you pick up along the way and they travel with you for some of the way and then they drop off, but that, that you might not see them anymore, they might not be close to you anymore physically close or even socially close but there's they still have that that part of your heart uh, and they, they brought you and that that maybe you were able to give something to them too by them being able to give something to you that sharing yeah and I think that the guiding drive and the, I think the guiding uh, something that drives the book and something that drove me is this idea not the idea but the feeling of love and it's a feeling of you know of of needing love, of having love, needing love, experiencing love, and, and, and also wanting love, you know. There, there's there's so much of it. So in a way that, that sets you up for having a page turner in a way because there's the, always things that are going to stand in the way of the wanting and sometimes you might block someone wanting to do the giving and, yeah, so I hadn't thought of it until I kind of finished it that that was such a big force in it, you know, because you don't really know what your emotional drivers are. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Love, says kind, love is kind of, I, I agree with you there, it's kind of, um, well, an, um, protection to guarantee inclusion. So, you know, what, well, at least what I don't want is 
for Louis to be excluded from society. And so in finding love in some way through other people or his friendships um, with Matthew or with other people, it guarantees his inclusion. Yeah, it's true. So it's, it's if one person can see a spark of something that they like in a child, that means that that child is real to them. It's not just a, a bundle of problems or someone that has to be kept clean or kept tidy or kept orderly. They're an individual. Um, I heard uh, Clementine Ford, who had has been a bit of a political advocate and has written a lot of political things about feminism, talking about um, love, actually, and she she's written a book, uh, an essay is called Traces of Love, just recently published, and she said that... Um, Everybody that what love is is about wanting to be uh, accepted and recognised and known, known, accepted and recognised, I think, were the three words. it was. Uh, I heard her being interviewed by Hilary Harper on Life Matters, uh, which is a radio national program that I've listened to for many years on and off. Yeah, and... Um, and, and I thought, oh, that's so true. That's really almost a, a, about what we want as advocates, isn't it? That, and, mm. that, yeah, to have to have recognition and appreciation and to be known. And for so long, I think people with dis, children with disability would, were not necessarily known as individuals. Yeah, except by right, that's, yeah, except maybe by some of the carers and the people who worked with them really closely who, who had time to see that. But if they were just one in a big group of people, they might have been the one that, you know, got the attention for the wrong reasons mm. and, and was a sort of a, a, a thorn in the side of the, the, the teacher. Uh, and otherwise, you know, right up until the 70s, uh, people were segregated and sort of, you know, taken off and sort of called crippled and, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you, you, I lived next door to a Down syndrome boy who really, you know, the blue bus came around every morning to pick him up. And it was so obvious that it was, he was, you know, heading to a school with children with a disability. Whereas now I feel like, you know, the bus comes past to pick Matthew up, but it's just a regular bus. It's not so obvious. And he feels like just one of anyone else and that's the biggest thing I think they need they do understand when they're being treated differently yeah yeah I think I think and and to some people it really matters and to other people it doesn't matter so yeah it's um once again that's a different thing but I think everybody has the right to be respected um and um and to be regarded as an individual um, but we all do need to be um, in groups for um, our survival and and to enhance um, our lives. And uh, yeah, there's lots of different groups. I don't think there's there. I don't believe there should be any shame in an, in a person attending a specialist setting. I think that. Um, but maybe it would be nicer if sometimes those settings were opened up uh, so that people could. And 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 sometimes they are, aren't they? When there are. There are um, fates or, or fairs or, or opportunities for people to be showcased, you know, that, that does happen, yeah, and especially now when things are online. But it's probably more that could be done. We probably could do a little bit more positive marketing, couldn't we, for um, people in specialist settings? Yeah. And tell us about Julian. Well, Julian's uh, 
problems were only apparent to me insofar as he was a, a, a struggling baby, you know, and I was a you know hopeless mother. So, um, but I think that um, his personality was evident right from the start. I remember the the midwife saying, as as he as the poor little you know scraggy might struggle to take his first breath, she said, "Oh, he's very determined." <laughs> which was lovely wasn't it that and I think midwives are there to see the magic in people yeah, yeah. and um so even though he had a, a lot of problems he couldn't feed properly he was basically starving he had some I don't know what problem he had he 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 had physiological problems that couldn't really be defined so he had sort of pronounced little protuberances on his pelvis that people thought might have been uh, some prolapsed testes or something like that, which they weren't, you know, and it was all people didn't really know what was going on. So, and he was kind of a little bit floppy and a little bit high tone, if, if you know what those things mean. I think to people who have children with cerebral palsy, they, they know what they mean. Um, and also, you know, multiple undiagnosed disabilities and genetic disorders also come with um, these types of characteristics. But I didn't know what those things were. I thought, well, I'm really terrible at holding this child, you know, and my, and my husband, who's a very organised person, probably thought the same, like, you know, he could, you know, wrap him up and hold him and, you know, he'd be he'd be, be good for a bit until he sort of spread his little arms wide and kicked his legs out and went, ah, ah, you know, yelled and yelled and yelled and cried for most of his first year, I think. Yeah, it was really um, most... Uh, Ah, extraordinarily uh, alarming <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You talk in the book about the day your doctor read to yourself and your husband um, Julian's results, and it brought so many memories back to me as well because I think I said the same thing as you is um, when they told you he had an intellectual disability and his age level, he wasn't at the age level of a typical four-year-old. And I think you you and your husband both looked at each other and said, oh, but he'll catch up, won't he? Well, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Was, that's how you felt too. 100% was the question. I, I, I'll always remember asking the same question, thinking, well, okay, so he's not standing up at two, but if he does it at three, what's the difference? You know, um, and I had the same, yeah, feelings like you did. I think too, uh, and I don't know if this was the same for you, but for us, they didn't use the intellectual disability word for a long time. It was just developmental delay. Yes, so that's just right. that, that term saying your child has a developmental delay, well, implied in that is a delay. So mm -hmm. you catch up. You don't know that. And then slowly it, it comes to you and his gap of his delay behind others is getting wider. Mm. And then as that does become wider and more evident, then people will say, ah, it looks like he's got a disability. So that means it's something that's more fixed, you know, and that and that can't be changed. Part of the reason that uh, they say delay and they can't answer questions like, will he catch up, is because nobody knows, you know. And I think, and I think it's important not to take away hope from people whose children may well uh, catch up or even surpass other people because um, some children who have disabilities in some or delays in some area are really advanced in, in other areas. And um, so 
And if I think about it, if I think about how Julian is today, I know that he has um, a really uh, uh, enhanced and highly developed capacity to read what people are doing, what they're saying, when he doesn't actually understand their language. But he's a really good observer of body language. And so he's very attuned to things. Um, and he can be supportive too in his own way and, and wants to bring people together when there's conflict. I'll give you a little example, if I can, from very recent times, not, not in the book, but it's sort of foreshadowed in the book. And it's uh, one of the things that I write about quite a lot in the book are uh, about the differences of opinion that I had with my, uh, that Ron and I have, my husband Ron, um, in bringing up Julian. And um, because uh, we see the world differently as and we see the world perhaps in traditional male-female ways of looking at it, but also just as different individuals. So we used to disagree, uh, and I didn't write, I didn't, couldn't write about every disagreement we had because there are just too many. <laughs> but uh, we, we did disagree at times when Julian was young about how Julian wanted to take on the school bus, Jul, the special school bus, Julian wanted to take um, toys. You know, he, he might want to take a big plastic bus because in that bus he put lots of little people and he he and one of them was a policeman and one of them was a bus driver and one, you know, and he, he they were characters that he would then show other people. But he couldn't say why he wanted to. He couldn't just say, my bar, me, yeah, uh, bar, here, you know. So just in these words and sounds he would say it. So... Um, I would get some kind of agreement from the school that even though it wasn't a special day, because, you know, on special show-and-tell days you can bring something in, and he saw that and he thought, I'm going to run with that, I'm going to take things every day. <laughs> so I used to say, look, please, because he can't talk as well as the other kids, you know, even though he was at a special school, his, his speech has always been very, uh, yeah, um, impeded. I've kind of had agreement from them. But, but Ron, you say, this is bizarre. You know, he can't take take this on the bus you know it's awkward it's difficult for other people it's going to be okay. so we did that so anyway recently we've been preparing our decluttering our house because we're selling a house and moving into an apartment and um one of the things that we uh, did use is a trailer a covered trailer that we put a lot of things that we didn't need and that nobody wanted and we took them to the waste transfer station like old paint tins and stuff like that nearby and um and Julian really loves this this occasion of kind of like doing something with his dad that that he's you know which is basically watching his dad try and remember how to lock the trailer into the car and saying to him here here that goes there no 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 it's in there <laughs> Because it's not being many times we do it, and it also has happy memories. Because Julian remembers when we used to go camping, we'd take that trailer, and that trailer would have our all our food in it, and that would be our larder while we were camping. And so we would open it up, and so you know, good happy memories. So he he said to me that, and we were gradually filling up the trailer before we took it for over a number of weeks before we took it to the waste transfer station. And Julian had this this idea that he would like Ron to take the trailer to his day program so everyone could see the trailer. And then Ron said, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's so heavy, it's so full of things and, you know, that would be terrible and, you know, why would anyone want to see it anyway? And so I had to say, well, um, 
we won't take it when it's full. We'll wait till it's emptied and then we'll leave it hooked onto the car. We'll park it out in the street so that it's not, you know, I know it'll be hard to get in the driver. We'll park it out in the street so it'll be there. And so anyway, so talked her all through, used my best executive functioning skills and explained how it would all be done and uh, got agreement. So we did that. And then come the day when it was time, the, the trailer was outside, empty, parked in the street, behind the car, it was all going to happen. And then Dad said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's silly. He said to Julian, I can't do that because the streets are too small that we go along to go there. And it's school time. There'll be people dropping off their kids. It's really awkward. It can't happen. Sorry. And Julian went, no, and ran into his room and slammed the door. And then I stood there and I said, it can be done. It has to be done. You can't do this to him. It's important for his communication. He said, Nobody asked me. I said, well, yeah, we did talk about it. And um, yeah, we, we all did talk about it. So, well, I don't remember. Well, you know, if you think it's a great idea, why yeah. don't you do it? I said, well, okay, okay, I will. Okay. And I'm hopeless at driving trailers, but I said, okay. So uh, so then I had to go in and persuade Julian and he was all, no, 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 you know, he was just going to stay there and not do anything and slam doors and be stuck in this meltdown, you know, I had sort of subdued meltdown and I had to, and and um, so anyway, got him out there, had to pretend to be jolly, got in the car, went by roads that were not cluttered, went a different route. <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> Came back, all done, very happy. People saw it, smiling, job done, explained to the coordinator of the centre why it was important to note this and to see, told the stories that Julian wanted to tell so that she could then tell other people. A bit of it had been written in the book and there was a picture in the communication book and then came home, hands up the key, said, it was fine. Um, you could have done it, but I was happy to do it. So we had a... It's kind of a quiet, reflective day and things are back on even keel. The role of the mother. Yeah, but it is funny, isn't it, when you, yeah, the role of the mother, I don't know, uh, I feel comfortable speaking about these things because they're real, you know. Yeah. No one has to have any shame. They're just emotions. It's just strong. It's not as if, you know, maybe it seems like I'm the one that's got all the power, you know, because, but it's, uh, it's for, it's not for myself. It's not, it's, it's power for, it's not power to, you know, you know, I have the power to advocate for Julian, to enable his life, to make it richer. And it's not about trying to block other people. It's about trying to open things up. And a great source of relief to me, because I had been very open about some family issues was when Ron read the book and um, he really liked it. So on balance, I treat him fairly and he comes out looking pretty good. <laughs> well done. Well done. I love where you wrote um, when you did find out that um, Julian had a disability, you refused to mourn and um, you said Julian might be broken, but I couldn't believe he was beyond repair that really stuck to me because it's kind of the way I sort of felt with Matthew. I, it's what you said before with disability. You don't really know what the to what extent the disability is going to be when they're that young. And, yeah, that was quite powerful for me to read that because it's kind of how I felt. I'm sure you were like 
you know, they said he might not walk. They said he probably won't talk. And, yeah, he does those things really difficultly, but he's he is doing them, you know, not, not like the way you and I do them. Is that what you meant when you wrote that? I think at the time I felt, you know, and it was it was even kind of more probably not as, as generous as, as your way of looking at it is because I think that I think at that stage I believed, okay, I am going to fix myself up and I'm going to fix him. I'm going to, it was, I was still in that mindset of catching up, you know, even mm. though, and I think that Ron was further down the, the road than me because at one stage he said maybe he won't even be able to read a bus ticket, which was kind of like a shocking way of sort of getting, you know, because I still thought that Julian was probably going to go to university, you know. <laughs> he just needed to be unlocked. He needed the speech therapist. He needed the, the psychologist. He needed the, the people to work their magic, and I had to work magic as well. And so and 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 that he was going to be just like everyone else that I thought, not even knowing really half the problems that everyone else has because, uh, yeah, because they don't show them, do they? They don't always tell you. People hide them <laughs> So when they can. So um, I, uh, so, but I, I did spend many years, I think, um, really hoping and believing that um, improving myself and improving, trying to improve Julian and getting the right therapist and everything would unlock uh, the magic key, you know, that would unlock uh, this locked box and then out of it would open sort of something as close to perfection as possible. Um, but since then I think I realised that it's not about that those, the therapies are all those things are important and the things that I can do to enhance his life and to open up communication and give him opportunities for learning and opportunities to shine, all those things are still really important, but they're about really about helping him to be who he is, not about helping him to be who I wanted him to be. Mm, so true. Yeah. And I don't think that, that that's something that you don't know. You know, it's something that people say, oh, yeah, I can relate to that when children are a bit earlier, but it's not something you can say to people when their children are little because, of course, we every parent wants their child to do well every child every parent wants their child to to it's not just about repair or catch up it's get ahead it's like the human race you know mm. so it's um and so in in a funny way even though I feel like I kind of hid a little bit from the from my friends who didn't have children with disability and and didn't um talk so much about what the the issues were for me in time, I came to see that many of that they had many of the same fears and anxieties that I had. That their children weren't quite the child that they wanted them to be either, or that they had dreamed that they would be. There was, mm. you know, and that, that's kind of those emotions, the disappointment and um, the worry about. And you're thinking, well, ah, what's going to happen? What are they going to be like? You know, what if they're not going to be like? I thought, what if they're not going to be a doctor or a scientist or a teacher or a lawyer? you know, or a businessman? What if they're not going to be like that? And people, we, 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 we have to keep on dealing with that. I remember worrying about my daughter when she didn't have a boyfriend and I thought maybe she'll have a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. how, long did it get, how long did it take you to get to that point, though, that where you just um, said, well, you, your job is actually to enrich rather than change? 
Mm. I don't know. I can't even say. I think it's been a slowly dawning thing, you know. I think that um, I think perhaps you ladies are ahead of me, you know, really. Where, you know, I think maybe when, I guess when Julian was uh, in his late teens, that was when I realised that he um, he should have the same opportunities that other people have because he was getting interested in girls, you know, and girls were showing an interest in him. And then I was thinking about, well, you know, this is really challenging because um, he has an intellectual disability and, I mean, he's nice looking but um, uh, really, and this is a whole other thing, the whole mating game is all about um, people enhancing their, their children's genes, isn't it? So, I mean, that what people are looking for in a mate is intelligence and, you know, you know, symmetry of features and, you know, sports skills. <laughs> So um, it was, um, so there were quite a few disappointments along the line there. And then I realised that, hey, you know, like he's he's not like that, but he is, but people do like him and people do respond to him. And he did want to have a girlfriend and he did, you know, and so a large part of the, well, not a large part, but a significant part of the book is about how I went to a workshop on sexual rights and um, and really uh entered in this quite a confronting world of seeing what not just people with intellectual disability like Julian but people with physical disability who um, can't um, really enjoy sex in the same way that able-bodied people can, can be assisted through sexual facilitation by sex workers or equipment um, to be able to um, enjoy sexual feelings. And so that was a really different way of looking at things. I mean, thinking about... Thinking about sex as not necessarily part of a relationship, but just as a person's right to be able to experience the pleasurable feelings of sex. So, you know, and that's not something that everybody agrees on. You know, people have different ideas about that. And some, some families and some cultures, it's not something that they really entertain. That's a whole tin of worms that you have to open up. But I mean, I felt that. Um, it's part of normal human experience and that Julian should be able to have that normal um, human experience to the best of his ability and and according to what his um, sort of wants and, and needs and desires were in a way that wouldn't really um, uh, impinge on anyone else's rights, yeah, or offend anyone, yeah. Yeah, we've been um, toying with that conversation for a little while yet and we haven't sorted it out. But you know what? We should invite you to a dinner with some other mothers and we can discuss it. In mm -hmm. detail. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I think that that's, uh, that's a great opening conversation and there we, we should put a um, an opportunity, if you don't mind once uh, we have your book delivered and we can read it to come back to you and um, and maybe next year pursue another conversation and and um, and explore some of the topics that are front of mind for us at the moment. Um, you know, independent living, as you said. Um, you know, um, the issue of sex and relationships and you know, our own mortality and you know what happens when yeah, exactly. we're not here and all those things. It's just exactly. like yeah, every parent, you know, 
of, of a vulnerable person needs to think about. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So yeah. there's like there's a hundred a hundred issues that we are still kind of tossing around, and we'd love to have your insights. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as you're ten years ahead of us, and your thinking is um, is you know obviously really mature, and you've been even able to put it into a book. So um, we really have appreciated your conversation today, but we look forward to more. Well, so great to be part of this podcast and really um, congratulations on what you're doing. Um, I love it. I think it's a really great resource and this is one of the things that so many of us remember from our early days. If only there was something like this then. Well, you know, here it is now for people out there now and I hope they're really accessing it and enjoying it. So true. And can you tell us, has Julian found a partner yet? He hasn't found a partner, but he has found there is a, well, yes and no. Yeah. Um, and he, yes and no to has he found a partner, but he ha- does have, uh, um, you know, yeah, I mean, he may have found a partner, but currently there is a girl at his day program who really likes him and that's really lovely. And so she can, she um, texts me and sends me messages about, what they, you know, she saw Julian and how they took some photographs and how lovely that is. And isn't that nice? That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, that's lovely. That's mm. beautiful. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much there and have a lovely weekend and, um, and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favorite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers, and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636 or Lifeline on 13 111 4.